I'm excited about what we're going to do now. We're going to talk about sub-Saharan Africa. It's an opportunity land. It's a land where great progress has been made since the, the colonial powers were thrown out in the 60s and 70s. And in the case of South Africa, just 20 years ago, the majority came to political power. There has been real progress. We don't tend to see that. But for instance, since 1990, sub-Saharan Africa has had the highest rate of growth in GNP than any place in the world. Uh, investment is pouring in from the United States, from China, from Japan, from the EC. And this is real progress that can be measured. And in the last few times, uh, measured in months in just a couple of years, eight countries have held free elections and established democracies to join other democracies that were already established in Sub-Sahara Africa. So don't think for a moment that it's all bad, but there's a lot of bad. There's about 955 million people in that area. Uh, that's about 14.5% of the world's population. And yet of the more than billion people who live on less than a dollar a day, more than half of them live there. Of the 48 poorest nations in the world, 32 of them are there. 60% of the HIV infections are there about 25 million people. And of course, the highest death rate from AIDS is there. And here's a statistic for you, it kind of shocked me. Of the 12 countries where at birth, life expectancy is under 50 years of age, 11 of those countries are there. The other country is Afghanistan. And of course, we concentrate on Iraq and uh, Afghanistan properly in the Middle East. But most of the violence and murder, murder approaching, of course, genocide, is going on there. So these are immense problems, and we're going to talk about them, the good as well as the bad. Let's talk about the people on the panel and introduce them now. If, if you went online uh, to the New York Times uh, op-ed page this morning, you read about Beatrice and her goat. Beatrice, it turns out, we learned, was a little girl in Uganda who was in a small village and clearly headed for some of these terrible things that I've been talking about, when a church in Connecticut discovered that for $120, they could buy a goat to be sent to Africa, and they did. And it ended up in that village with Beatrice's parents. And the goat produced other goats, and it produced milk, and some of it was sold. And Beatrice has just graduated from college here in the United States. Now, I tell you this story because the man who wrote that has made his reputation around the world by writing about terrible things that are happening and trying to spotlight them. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes for his, con his uh, coverage of Tiananmen Square after the fact and looking into it with his wife, who's also a great journalist, uh, and for trying to alert the world to the fact that genocide is going on in Dorfor and shouldn't somebody do something about it. You met him this morning. Of course, I'm talking about Nicholas Kristof. And the reason I bring up Beatrice in the Goat, his column this morning, is that Writing about all these terrible things, he remains an optimist. He remains someone who sees the good things and the good things in Africa. Nicholas, come out here. Thank you. <laughs> right. Right. I, don't, I don't know where you were on March 20th of uh, 1985, but I was glued to a television set along with other millions of Americans watching my friend Ted Koppel conduct a debate in South Africa on Nightline. There were two men debating. One was black and one was white. The white man was the Minister of Foreign Affairs of South Africa. 
and the black man was the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. They had never before spoken to each other in any forum. And there was many parts of the debate, but I just want to recall one or two exchanges. Uh, R.F. Botha, who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, said, well, where in the rest of Africa do black people enjoy the standards they enjoy here? And the Anglican Archbishop replied, but I cannot vote. According to the government, I am not a South African. My trial travel documents says that of my nationality, that it is undeterminable. He, of course, was one of two men, the other being Nelson Mandela, who helped free and bring justice to the people of South Africa, the majority that had been suppressed. I speak, of course, about the Nobel Peace Prize winner, the Archbishop of Cape Town Emeritus, the Most Reverend Desmond Tutu. You've got to put up this when you're a hero, and you are. And by the way, uh, Desmond Tutu is a member of the class of 2003 of the Academy. And as you know, uh, Nicholas is going to be inducted tomorrow night. When Ronald Reagan took office shortly thereafter, I was covering him as a reporter. He brought a foreign visitor to the Rose Garden one day, a distinguished-looking gentleman. And he introduced him. He said, I'd like, I'd like you to meet our visitor from across the seas, Chairman Moe. Well, most of us knew that it didn't look like Mao, and we knew Mao was dead anyway. <laughs> who was Chairman Mo? It turned out to be a man named Samuel K. Doe, who was the president of Liberia because he had overthrown the civilian government. And the minister of finance of the former governor fled the country when that overthrow occurred. It's a good thing she did because some of her fellow ministers were executed. After a few years, she was allowed to come back, and Chairman Mo threw her in prison. And she spent five years in prison. He let her go again. She left the country. And when Chairman Mo uh, left office, having been dispatched by machine gun fire by some of his compatriots, she came back and ran for the presidency of Liberia. Foolish thing for a woman to do, particularly in Africa. As you see, they never make it. But in any event, she didn't make it. A man named Taylor, Samuel Taylor, won the presidency. And he turned out to be another murderous thug. So she fled the country once again, one step ahead of the hangman. Taylor finally was forced out, and she came back. This woman is persistent, and she ran for the presidency. She won. In 2005, she won the presidency of Liberia with a democratic government that she put in place. She is known as the Iron Woman of Africa, and she is with us today. And I refer, of course, to Her Excellency, the President of the Republic of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Thank you. The glass, Madam President, I talked about the good things and a lot of the bad things in Sub-Saharan Africa. Half full. Is it filling up or is it still draining out? The glass is half full. 
It's not half empty. We've come a long way. From the um, post-revolutionary days, the good days of the 60s, we call it the boom years. By the time we reached the 80s, it were the bust years. Um, the lost decade for Africa, it was called. But the 90s have been um, the period of recovery. And so we have uh, so many countries that have put their economic and financial house in order. Uh, growth rate have averaged annually 5% for the past several years. Um, large budget deficits, high inflation rates are largely a thing of the past. Uh, the debt issue has been tackled. Another heavily indebted poor countries initiative by some 33 countries. Um, there were four democracies in 1989. There are over 20 today. But we still got a long way to go. I, you know, there's no reason to be complacent. We've got a lot of trouble spots, and I'm sure we get to talk about those. Uh, but I think the glass is, is half full, and our challenge now is to see how we can keep pouring more water into it and move it even further up toward the brim. We're all curious. When you one step ahead of the hangman, when you get thrown in prison, what kept you coming back? Uh, my belief that the Liberian people deserve more that we have a country with great potential. Um, lots of natural resources, small population. Uh, and that we could do it with, a little, with some determination and courage and squaring off you know, with, uh, with those that would keep us down, that we had to keep challenging them and fighting them. And, but weren't you, know, you afraid? You have to be afraid when you're dealing with characters like that. <laughs> to be honest, you have to be afraid. Uh, but you sort of brush away the fear and, you know, put up a brave face in front of them and square them down, look them eye, eye to eye. And maybe in the night when you're by yourself, you said, oh, God, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> well, Bishop Tutu, uh, you and Nelson Mandela and others helped free people in South Africa, but the rest of the continent is in need of your services. You told me back there that you were retired, not for a moment. So give us at least your advice. Uh, there are so many trouble spots still, but the world is now looking at a couple of them, and one of them is Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe. What's to be done there? Thank you. Can I preface it by saying one or two things that have got nothing to do with the question. I would never deny you anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, first is uh, to say happy July the 4th to those of you who are Americans. Um, and then I think we, 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 we want to congratulate Madam President again because she's the first African to be head of state, a woman to be head of state, and I think you deserve a clap. Thank you, thank you. And uh, the third, 
gets to bring me to your question, because she is one of the few African heads of state um, who came out very firmly to declare that uh, what happened recently in Zimbabwe was illegitimate and unacceptable. And, and so I think... <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a beautiful dream that has turned into a nightmare because uh, Robert Mugabe in, in many ways uh, was our star turn um, and, and what he did after in, uh, winning his first um, post-independence election made, made many of us very proud that, I mean, he, he didn't uh, pursue revenge and, uh, and retribution. And as you know, Ian Smith remained a member of parliament uh, until he stepped down on, uh, of his own free will. What, what has taken place is totally unacceptable. Uh, and I am myself shamed, especially by the position that my, my country has taken. Uh, I, I would say, I mean, what we want straight away is stopping the violence, the intimidation, the maiming of people, and, and clearly it can't happen without, I think, an international force uh, being deployed in, in Zimbabwe. And I think that that is what should happen as quickly as possible. What sort of international force? Composed of what nation? Well, uh, I suppose, I mean, uh, to be sensitive to um, some of the concerns, you'd say, it ought to be mainly African, but I mean that uh, logistical support and all of those other things, it should be an international force. And they've done that, I mean, they've done that in, uh, in Darfur, which you mentioned uh, at, at the beginning, um, which is to try to protect the people and, and to come and uh, try to normalize the situation. Uh, and. And, and work towards an, a transitional government, not, not a government of national unity, I don't think, um, a transitional arrangement that would then prepare for, 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 for the yeah, pres presidential, another round of presidential elections.